Welcome to Cultivating Conservation, a podcast navigating new ideas of what conservation means and how we really can promote change. My name's Megan, and for the past 10 years I've been working as a filmmaker, telling stories about the natural world, in particular stories about whales. And I found on so many occasions whilst discussing different issues that all these incredible people around me doing exceptional things were not comfortable calling themselves conservationists. I'm here to call you all out and to instigate informal chats with individuals from all backgrounds about what the term really means to them. Delving into what shaped their thoughts and how each navigate the ideas of true conservation in what can sometimes feel like a constantly changing and hopeless future. My hope is to nourish and grow conscious conversations to ultimately help save the planet. Incremental change leading to monumental change. And if listening to this inspires just one person to get involved in something they really care about, then I'll be happy. So, what does conservation mean to you? This week, I'm talking with my big sister, Lindsay. She is a mother, a veterinary nurse, a yoga teacher, the founder of her local green group community, orangutan foundation ambassador, pioneer of the pollinator pledge, hedgehog rehabilitator, the list is absolutely endless. My sister, from dawn till dusk, is doing every little thing that she can to make our world a better place, and it is infectious to anyone that surrounds her. Like most older sisters, she has been a person I've looked up to my whole life, but this is on another level. Living halfway across the world from her and my niece is so incredibly hard, but even with 4,000 kilometres between us, our endless voice notes and FaceTimes keep us going, talking about all our crazy conservation ideas. I decided that if she could encourage everyone in her community to try and do better for this planet with the little spare time that she has, then trying to make that audience a little bit bigger was about the best thing that I could do. We talk all things balance, hope, community and inspiration. My big sister, Linz. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh, yay, but it's not coming through the headphones again. <laughs> Let's have a look. Okay. Yeah, I think we're okay. Technical difficulties aside. Right, where's your microphone? It's on your scarf there. Right, so now give me some words so I can just check that that's working properly. Oh, magnificent. Yes, it's, good, it's it? all good. Yes, love it. Okay, great. Well, here we are. Thanks, Linz. Where do we even start? Can you start by introducing who you are and how do we know each other? Hello, I am Lindsay Raven Emmerich and I am Megan Hocken Bennett's sister. <sighs> by choice. From another mister. No, I can't say that. <laughs> My choice. <laughs> so I guess, well, I came into your life when I was about six months old, I guess. Yeah, I think when, so. Uh, I think we moved in together when you were two. But I don't have very good memory, do I? You are my memory. <laughs> you help me with my recollections. Yeah, I don't have much memory of that time. But yeah, we've been together since since then. And my mum and your dad are still together, which is great. Yeah. Just got married after 30 years. Yes. Living a life of Riley in Spain. They love it. <laughs> great. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Linz. I'm just, I've, you were one of the first people I thought about when I wanted to do this podcast. You and Shari were my two main, my main peeps that mm. I wanted to 
get people to listen to because I think your stories are important and I think what you're doing is really really important oh thank you and yeah I think the first question that I always ask people is around origin and it's asking the question of when was your what's your earliest memories of loving something so much that you wanted to you know protect it or that light bulb moment that you can think of that made you think like oh this is you know this is something that I need to to do to help conserve this or can be anything little or big wow that's a really yeah really really good question because I feel like then wasn't necessarily one of those moments. And I remember, do you remember when we went to Iceland and Dylan said to us, so when did you get involved in nature? And I was like, I don't really know. <laughs> but I don't know. It feels like it's always been there. So I was largely brought up by my nan, who is a wonderful, wonderful lady and very much of her era, nothing was wasted. So I think I probably got it from her. So she inadvertently looked after the world because she wouldn't waste anything and every resource was really important whether that be water electric gas food you know we scraped the mold off cheese and ate it that kind of thing so I reckon it would have come from her but also I've had lots of experiences that have contributed towards it as well definitely yeah I definitely think of whenever I see the term reuse reuse recycle it always reminds me of nanny because she was always whether it was yeah garage all of her gardening stuff and how she used to use all the lollipop sticks and and she used to she used to reuse she used to reuse wrapping paper and reuse birthday cards and she just everything in her house had a had a use for it and if and it probably already had a use before that as well yeah Definitely. So I, I think some of my fondest memories are of her taking cuttings from, you know, geraniums and always growing tomatoes from scratch and those kind of homely f- smells that evoke so many memories. But yeah, you're right. I think we used to all laugh at her, didn't we, at the time that she would save all the wrapping paper at Christmas and birthdays and things. And everyone would laugh at that. But that's now me. <laughs> I actually now do that. 100%. <laughs> Me too. I always get a massive smile on my face when I get a card from you or a wrap. My present has been wrapped in like the packaging from something that I know you've bought because I know it's the brand that you buy and I just love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. And I think I think you only really realise, you know, when they're gone, because we did sadly lose her a few years ago, you only realise when they're gone how, you know, how important they were and realize actually she was my best friend and she taught me so much you know she gave me my green fingers she made me respectful so we have a lot to thank my nan for hey (laughs) we do audrey raven yes she was the best and then i think i remember i can't remember you must have been when did you go you went traveling when you were about 21 was it 21 yes when you went traveling yeah, I was definitely in my 20s, maybe maybe 23. So I went, so basically I floated around a lot after doing my A-levels and not really knowing what to do. I nearly went to university to study leisure and tourism, but I joined a company that offered work experience and the work experience at the time was a placement at Colchester Zoo. So I started work experience at Colchester Zoo and within about three or four days, they asked if I wanted a job. And 
I owe so much to Richard for seeing something in me because he was like, do you want a job? You know, you're great. Come along, come work for us. So I ended up being there and I was a keeper and I worked with loads of amazing keepers. Glenn Fairweather, I distinctly remember on reptiles, taught me everything I know about reptiles and loads and loads of other people. And I was so lucky and so fortunate to have that experience because I think now it's really difficult to get into that kind of job. But I knew I always really wanted a little bit more. So I wanted to be in veterinary. So after three years of there, I decided to take a year out. So that's when the traveling came after the zoo experience. And I think that's when it, you know, really ingrained the importance of the environment after having been on some volunteer projects. So I did a couple of volunteer projects, one in Africa and then another in Borneo. So I still kind of pinch myself to this day and realize how lucky I was being able to do all of that. But when you have kind of worked with these animals in zoos and then you see them in their natural environment, I think that really makes you think even more about how much we need to do to protect their natural environment. So I think that's, yeah, that was a massive eye opener for me. So maybe that was more like my, my epiphany at the time when we really needed to look after. I remember the stories that you brought back and the photographs that you brought back from Borneo with you and your stories of working with the orangutans that definitely impacted me. I just remember thinking it was the most amazing thing that anyone could ever go and do was to to spend time with the orangutans like you did. But going back to zoos really quickly. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of of the opinion that unfortunately but we live in a world that I think is going to need zoos, you know, to a certain extent down the line. Cause I think it's all, it's in a, in a perfect world, all the animals will be living wild and free, but unfortunately yeah. there is not the habitat left and very shortly will definitely not be the habitat left Yeah, to, to keep these, these animals alive. But going from spending time in zoos, such a young age, and then going on to, have the experiences you had and then to go on to be a vet how do you feel that your views on zoos have changed over the years I mean you have a child now and uh, you take Connie mm. to the zoo and as do so many people that we know it brings a lot of joy to a lot of people yeah. that we know definitely so I think I kind of fell into that position and I like you was very much on the fence wasn't really sure about how I felt about zoos at the time and soon you know got a bit of experience within the zoo setting and the keepers are everything the keepers make their animals lives I think at that time I can't even remember that must have been like 2000 I think I joined the zoo in 2002 like enrichment within a zoo environment was just coming in and training within a zoo environment was just coming in as well so we were really starting to understand zoo animals a little bit more and their enclosures were getting better and so for me, I had my own small mammal section. So I had all the lovely little marmosets, tamarins, squirrel monkeys, and they all started breeding quite prolifically because we were making them quite happy, <laughs> which is equally lovely. But then there was that little, you know, person on my shoulder thinking, well, they're breeding, but their enclosures aren't getting any bigger. So there was that, there was that kind of doubt in my mind whether or not I truly believed in zoos. However, I know we've had many conversations where I then went full circle and started thinking, well, actually, we have to view the animals within zoos as the guardians of the species. Because if we don't have zoos, we don't have 
anything kind of close enough for our children to then get inspired about, to then want to save them, to then want to help the environment that they need to survive. So for me, I've kind of, yeah, gone full circle and been like to have a daughter myself now and be able to take her up to the zoo and her to see these animals from trying to live now a more environmentally conscious way of life. I won't be flying to Africa, <laughs> probably, to show her those animals. Yeah, we need to inspire these youngsters somehow. And I feel that, you know, I feel that zoos are a good way of doing that. And they are now working a lot more towards charitable, you know, charitable aspects and working with lots of projects and getting money to those projects to help them animals within the wild. So, yeah, don't get me wrong. Not all zoos are good zoos. And there are definitely some animals that shouldn't be in zoos, but there are also some really, really good zoos. And I think we have to give respect where it's due. Yeah, that's and that's it's interesting to see you you go full circle from, you know, lots of different conversations that we've had about that kind of stuff. But outside talking about how you were saying about becoming environmentally conscious where do you feel your journey went because I would call you an incredibly environmentally conscious human being and there's many things that I want to talk to you about in regards to that but where did your journey with becoming more environmentally conscious begin do you think it's a really difficult one again because I feel I, I find it difficult to draw it to any singular aspect because I think the main thing was obviously after Borneo, I came, I f actually flew over rainforests that have been deforested for palm oil. So that was a massive reawakening for me. Like, wow, I saw it firsthand. But then, you know, I came home, I worked a lot of the Orangutan Foundation and I, I became an ambassador and I gave lots of talks. So I was spreading the word, you know, about how we need to save the rainforests and, and things like that. But then I feel like, I had to put that to bed a little bit because we have to carry on with our lives. I had to get a job. So I guess that's when then I trained to become a veterinary nurse. But I distinctly remember in one of my veterinary nurse jobs that I was like, oh, right, we need all disposable drapes. We need disposable gowns. We need disposable surgical drapes. And I was not very environmentally conscious then. And now we look at that you know, frowning, because actually now we're doing all washable drapes, all washable grounds. So I guess that's something to talk about shortly. But then I fell pregnant. I remember in the first couple of weeks of finding out I was pregnant, I was said to myself, this child will not have an impact on this planet, or as she obviously will. <laughs> but can we limit that impact as much as we can? And I feel like that's when I started getting pretty hardcore. It's weird, this motherhood is, is you know, a hard job anyway. But when those instincts kick in for the love for that child, but also the love for this planet, you're, you're on a real balancing act there. Because <laughs> every single thing we do as a human is going to have some impact on, on the planet. So I ask myself a lot of questions. I made myself a lot, do a lot of things and make a lot of choices that I knew weren't going to be as impactful on the planet. So a huge one. And I remember you did, you gave a talk at an event that we both spoke at an event. It was an event organized by my friend, Lauren, who I'm also going to interview for this yes. podcast, Lauren Plummer. Yeah. Um, and she organized an event, which is part of a series. It's called Petra Kutcher, 
and it's a I think it's a Japanese tradition and you provide uh, 20 slides and you talk for 20 seconds about each slide 20, yeah 20 minutes and so yeah. and and it, it's such a great concept and you can talk about absolutely anything and we were trying to get this mm. a group of different talks together for the the local one that we were doing and I spoke about whales and and I said to you you've got to, you've got to do one about what you're doing with Connie and how you're trying to limit your impact on the environment with raising a child and all these like crazy pictures that you had of all these like crazy things that you felt up and it was such an inspiring talk but do you want to talk a little bit about how that made you feel giving that talk it was so many years ago now so many years ago I don't even yeah well she would have been born so it was seven years ago wasn't it maybe six and a half but yeah, when you said, let's do it, I was like, okay, so I'd never done a talk on anything like that before. So imposter syndrome kicks in a little bit because you think, well, I'm not a professional, you know, <laughs> but I did it anyway. And I think I entitled it bringing up children sustainably or something like that. So 20 slides. So you had to find 20 pictures and I wanted to find pictures that well, you know, like grabbing people's attention. So I remember at the time, I just vowed I would buy every single thing secondhand for the upbringing of this baby that was coming into the world. So I did a lot of we have lots of nearly new sales here in the UK. So I did everything by nearly new. The cloth nappies are a massive one. I think we were all brought up on, you know, terry toweling nappies. So I obviously did that. And then it's things like you know, choosing your formula or breastfeeding over formula. Oh, there's so much and there was so much involved. So it was actually quite difficult to come up with 20 slides and 20 pictures. But yeah, I had loads of really lovely feedback at the end, which was nice. And it, it's that little opportunity, you know, just 20 minutes talking about something, that little opportunity to send those little ripples. How do you feel to... those decisions you made in the early stages of Connie's life have impacted impacted her now at the age of seven you know I could already tell that she is a totally conscious young mind and yeah how do you feel that you're able to adapt that into your life now that she's a little bit older it's getting harder as she's getting older <laughs> I will say that because she'll see her friends with things and she wants specific things but oh my gosh, we live in a world now where there is so much stuff. It's unreal, literally. So if she says to me, okay, I want whatever, a Spider-Man toy, you just go on to one of the many websites that sell secondhand things and you can buy anything you want secondhand. So I say to her, right, we're going to save up your pocket money. So she gets a little bit of pocket money now and she's learning the value of money, which is lovely. And then she'll say, oh, at the moment she's into this program called Gabby's Doll's House. Oh, mommy, I really want this Gabby's Doll's House toy. And I say, great. OK, let's go and have a look. And so we look online and we look on the shops and I say, well, in this shop, it's $13.99. But let's see if we can get it secondhand. Because <laughs> not only is that better for the Amazing. planet, it's actually, you know, just going to save you some money. So then we find the same toy for half the price. And, you know, we've helped the planet by not having to produce that toy that's going to break anyway and end up in landfill, not using the oil, you know, not coming from China. It's unreal when you look into it, every single thing that we're importing now in our consumer, oh, our consumer obsessiveness. It's, yeah, so trying, trying to keep that in her, but there is going to come a time, I think, where she may rebel against it. I don't know. You know, we try our best. Christmas is always quite funny and one day she'll listen to this. But 
So Father Christmas gets her secondhand toys and that's actually really cool. So this year, Connie made the suggestion. So if Father Christmas gives away secondhand toys, maybe I give her my Barbie dream house that I had last year so he can give it to another child. (laughs) And I was just overjoyed. I was like, she's got it. She's got it already. So I left it out in, in our little courtyard garden and the elves came and got that Barbie dream house. She'd only had it a year. She didn't want it anymore. So we were like, good, let's get rid of it. It was massive taking up too much space anyway. And can I just point out that we got that second hand anyway? Father Christmas got that second hand anyway. So it was fine. So yeah, I loved it. <laughs> that is amazing. One thing that I think I can imagine you were really proud of was when I was last home that when we were driving down a road and she noticed a sticker in somebody's window and she said, that's that sticker there is a pollinator pledge. And I said, what, what's a pollinator pledge? And she said, that's mummy's that's mummy's sticker that's the pollinator pledge it made me so happy and I'm sure it made you so proud but can you just explain a little bit about what the pollinator pledge is and what that means for your community yeah that's it's really nice to hear because I'd forgotten that she spotted that with you so yeah really really nice so yeah the pollinator pledge so out of a lots of different things that I do in my crazy ideas I set up it's actually called the fingerin ho green group and we set that up back in 2018 And I just put something on Facebook and was like, hey, I'm Lindsay and new to the village and I really just want to look after the planet. Is there anyone else that wants to come and have a chat and have a beer? And we went to the famous Whalebone pub, which is in the Finger in Ho village. And I met up with three fantastic people who are still on the green group now, which is so lovely. And then since then, it's kind of just built and we've just got this little group of about 10 people and we just have the odd meeting we organize the odd event but the pollinator pledge came about from last year so I decided I needed a little bit more environmental stuff within the finger and hoe green group because we'd focused a lot on recycling so we'd had recycling days which have been really good actually we did one at the local church where we said right bring a bring along all your stuff that you you know otherwise would go into landfill and we collected it. And the first one we did was unreal. So we had loads and loads of cables, toothbrushes, glasses, everything that we could recycle that would end up in landfill normally. So that was one of the really good events. But I wanted to steer us a little bit more environmental, well, more environmentally. So I actually joined forces with the Essex Wildlife Trust as a wildlife champion. So that's kind of where the pollinator pledge idea came from. The green group kind of just ran with it. You know, I was there helping to piece things together. And then we designed a logo. We decided what we wanted to do, what we wanted to achieve within the village. And so we did a round robin. We (laughs) put the leaflets around each door and it said pollinator pledge. And on the other side, it had five really easy things that you could do to help pollinators. So, you know, don't use pesticides, plant some nice pollinator plants. And there was a list of five amongst other things and then we asked them at the bottom if you're going to do this you know simple thing can you proudly display your leaflet within your window and so all the residents got behind it and it was really nice and I think we had about an uptake of about 50 so about 50 people popped a little pollinator pledge in their window and that's what Connie spotted so it was so nice when you kind of walked out the village and you'd be like oh someone else has got a pollinator pledge up that person's got a pollinator so that means that they're doing something for the pollinators and not only did it make us feel good but it kind of got this village talking a little bit 
yeah, so we were really proud. We're really happy with the success of that one. Because I think one of the most inspiring things I find about you, Linz, is that it is <laughs> never ending. It is never ending from the second you wake up in the morning to the second you go to bed at night. Just prime example, what was the first thing you did when you woke up this morning? Was there a s- small spiky animal that you had to attend to <laughs> the second you woke up yes so amongst my roles many of my roles I am a critical care hedgehog nurse and so I look after hedgehogs I get them through that kind of critical phase when they're really really poorly and then we send them to rehabbers that work really closely with us and have all been trained and then they can be released into the wild so yeah prickly little friend Oh, I can't even remember how many I've got. I've been doing it for years now, but this one has been particularly troublesome. He just keeps gaining weight, losing weight, gaining weight, losing weight. So he has been with me and he's now moved back into the garage because we've had a really cold spell here in the UK and it's been minus six this morning. Yeah. So I have to take constant fecal samples, figure out what parasites he's been yeah, fighting and then treat him for the parasites, make him. 100% well and better and I'm hoping that he will go back to the wild and live a nice wild and free life his name's actually Oakley and one of the rehabbers named this one (laughs) they come up with better names than me and why are you having to look after all these hedgehogs what's going on so where members of public will come across these hedgehogs and sometimes they're just out during the day and sometimes we get to certain times of the year and they're a lot smaller than we need them to be kind of pre-hibernation and then we need to give them kind of all the help we can so they can then go back into the world and have hibernations in years to come but I think the problems that they're facing is the seasons are changing so you know it's not always as cold or as warm well actually sometimes it's too warm and then when it's too warm they can't get the food so hedgehogs predominantly feed on insects so caterpillars beetles bugs sometimes slugs sometimes snails so if we have periods of drought then they can't get any insects and so they perish that way equally their very name hedgehog they do rely on hedgerows and it's another big problem here in the UK especially is that we're having less and less hedgerows which is where they find most of their food use of pesticides so Again, that was a kind of reason we kept coming back with for the pollinator pledge because I was like, what do we do? Do we do exactly, you know, a project for stag beetles? Do we do a project for hedgehogs? But actually, everything relies on pollinators. Everything relies on insects. So the hedgehogs rely on insects for their main food source. And if there's no insects, there's no hedgehogs. So we're finding members of public are bringing a lot of hedgehogs into vets and because they're finding them perishing out in the wild and so our job is to get them back to full fitness and then find areas where we know that they are going to get food to be out in the wild and with lots of recent studies we now know that actually there are more urban hedgehogs than there are rural because hedgehogs are more and more relying on us as a species to feed them so lots of feeders out there So we will now only release hedgehogs where we know there are already populations and where we know that there are a lot of lovely, lovely humans out there willing to feed them. So if there are these periods of drought or if there are these periods of, you know, rural cold that 
prolonged cold so they can't hibernate forever, then there will always be a food source for them when they wake up. It's really important. Yeah, it is super important. What advice could you give to the general public that are living in England of things that outside of the pollinator pledge that they could do to help provide a better environment for hedgehogs? Just be planet and nature conscious. I mean, you don't need plastic astroturf lawns. <laughs> nature does not need that. Hedgehogs do not need that. We need nature. We need biodiversity. We need ecosystems. We just, I don't know, you know, not when I say we, a lot of humans are very clean, very particular, want everything just so. But how about we have areas that are just so and then we have other parts of the garden that aren't just so and they're wild and then, you know, there's still little wild spaces left for these animals, these insects, everything that needs it. Thinking about everything that you do on a day-to-day basis, a weekly basis, a monthly basis, a yearly basis, sounds exhausting to me. (laughs) How do you find the drive and the energy to keep yourself going with all of this because we all live we all live really busy lives especially people like you that are mothers that work full-time and do you have ebbs and flows where you think oh, I just can't do all of this all the time and how does how do you keep on top of that how do you find your momentum where are you drawing your inspiration from to keep going and keep pushing forward with these projects yeah it's a real balance isn't it I think everything has to be done in balance and they're there has been times, you know, where you do feel down and you think, oh, I don't, you know, what's the point? <laughs> what is the point? But I think I asked myself that a long, long time ago. I think in my, in my early teens, I distinctly remember starting yoga when I was 18 years old because the big life questions came in. You know, what, what actually is the point? You know, we're just here. We just, what do we do? And then we just die anyway. What's the point? So I uh, started yoga classes actually participating in yoga classes and it was a real physical thing for me then but actually when I trained to become a yoga teacher you realize that the philosophy behind yoga helps you through so you either find a faith you know you can find a religion some people find drugs some people find alcohol I found yoga so I was very very lucky and that is what kind of gives me my energy and yeah just let's go of the egos the the big you know the biggest teachers talk about ego a lot where we let go of that ego and we you just find I don't know you just find the energy you find what you need to keep you going but big time you need to find people like-minded people so I'm very lucky because I have you (laughs) we're very like-minded we find our tribe don't we I think it's really important to give my husband a massive shout out because he keeps me I don't know he keeps me sane and he helps me keep things in perspective because I think sometimes, you know, ideas can run away with me and, you know, all the dread can certainly run away with us. And yeah, my husband is amazing, bringing me back, keeping me positive. Yeah. And just moving on with me as well. He's incredible. Another person that really I've just come to really admire over the last few years is a lady called Jen Gale. And she actually was a vet. So she was a vet for 10 years. And then she came out of the profession and she set up this group called Sustainable-ish. 
And it's really nice because she always talks about she doesn't have this big green whacking stick. You know, we can just do little things and it, it can really help. That's where the ish comes in. So there's a big kind of group of us with all very similar mindsets that get together on a monthly basis and have a chat. And that's been really good over the last few years. When I've kind of doubted, is what I'm doing helping? That bringing me back to that group has really, really helped. Because we are, we are going to go up and down, aren't we? And unfortunately, I think we do feel like we do have to make sacrifices around our environmentalism, our you know conservationism. But you know, there's other people doing that as well, and you've got to find your tribe, definitely. And I think you're interviewing a lot of people that are in within the right mindset and certainly within that tribe. Well, that's also one of the things that I wanted to find balance with in this podcast is finding different people that are doing different things and I've spoken to a lot of people that are working directly in conservation and working directly in activism and although your primary job is a veterinary nurse and a mother you are creating just as much impact as those people because of the community that you're inspiring around them around you sorry and so I just think that's a really important point to make that yeah incremental change leads to monumental change and that can happen in a town as small as yours and it can happen from listening to people like Jane Goodall and Alex Morton speaking on various different topics and I think that's where you've always been such an inspiration for me because you're on the ground all the time you know feeding hedgehogs oatmeal at 6am in the morning it's funny (laughs) (laughs) I don't see it as a chore really I just see it as our way of life and it you know if everyone made it their way of life we'd be living in a much more balanced society wouldn't we if we put nature first we would be a lot richer it's about counting the small wins as well like yeah give me an example of a couple of small wins recently for you Oh, a couple of small wins recently oh there's been so many so I'm so so lucky because My workplace very much supports everything I do. They take on a lot of my crazy ideas and inspiration. And so we're now a registered green veterinary practice with a handful of veterinary practices within the UK. So we always have wins there, wins there every day. So, oh, what's one? So we do our planet pledges once a year. I've got to get them all to do a planet pledge. We'll be doing that again soon. We had our secret centre this year was to provide each other with a book, a secondhand book and socks instead of some junk that nobody wants for a fiver. So that was really nice. Those are nice personal gifts. We've decreased our gas usage at work, which is huge and makes a massive difference towards our carbon footprint. So, oh, there's wins every day. And I think you have to look out for those little wins. But equally, you know, don't just strive for the wins because this is a long slog. I think definitely when I listened to Alex Morton talking and how she's been doing it for so long, I thought you've got to be in this for the long run. And it doesn't matter if there's not a single win every day, is there? But do look for the little achievements. When we have our Finger in Ho Green Group meetings, we do try and lead with, you know, what's been your favourite part? you know, what's been your favourite achievement or 
and one lady said I just love our litter picks I just love our you know our litter picks that we do so regularly and that that kind of warmed my heart a bit because I thought yeah I forgot about those we do those quite a lot as well <laughs> well it's like what Alex said Alex said about being on the big team you've got to be on the yeah. big team yeah I love that. and when you feel like you're on the big team you feel absolutely impossible uh, in- unstoppable that yeah. doesn't matter if you feel like you're on the big team doing a litter pick in your local community or if you feel like you're part of the big team at a protest holding up a sign or you know signing a petition or anything that it is that you're doing like you've got to have a smile on your face and think I'm on the big team yeah that's where we are yeah, yeah. I love that I love that yeah just a last couple of final questions sister and the first is what do you see yourself what do you see yourself doing in the next five years you and Connie together what do you see yourself doing in the next five years to help keep this keep this ball rolling oh so much so so much so I would really like the school to get a little bit more on board I think there's a lot of pressure for the schools to do more so I'm gonna yeah see if we can get so Connie's now on the school council so hopefully we can get the you know the pupils thinking a little bit more broadly within the school so that's a big one and the other one is I am desperate to get her on a kind of turtle conservation project I absolutely love turtles I haven't spent much time with turtles so we will have to forego our our travels <laughs> our, our anti-travel plans and hop on a flight and go over to Greece or the Maldives or somewhere and yeah go on a family volunteer project that would be amazing because again you know we have to do these things to inspire them and you know keep the love of the animals going I'm really conscious that you know children do grow out of nature especially when they get to their teens I feel like it's going to be hard to keep the inspiration there so somehow I just need to trickle feed and keep her loving nature and the environment and animals as much as I do what do you think she's gonna go on to do this is ridiculous she's seven oh. seven years old we're totally <laughs> absolutely no idea on... <laughs> <laughs> oh no absolutely no idea and I you know I don't mind I think every mother's prerogative is that we just want their their children our children to be happy but I would love her to be happy and reduce impact on the planet <laughs> at the same time <laughs> but we shall see about that I think if she I think if she does rebel I think it will go full circle pretty quick yeah a lot like, of mothers a lot of other wise mothers have said you know don't worry Lynn she'll come back she'll come back to the way of thinking that we need her to yeah. eventually and yeah, I think the main fear is that, you know, there's going to be a time where she just doesn't want to hang out with us. <laughs> and then that's when she'll be like, yeah, I'm not doing any of that, mum. <laughs> well, that's when well, that's when we need to, like, you know, bring her over to Canada for a little bit or go and participate on one of these exciting, you know, trips. Yeah. Oh, like yeah. That. Canada's just definitely something. on the five-year plan. To be able to bring her out to Craycroft Point would be incredible because she just gets bombarded with killer whale videos from her auntie Megan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bombarded's yeah. the wrong word because we absolutely love them. So yeah. to be able to see a killer whale in the wild for herself will, I think it will blow her mind. It will absolutely blow her mind. <laughs> it's something that I think about and daydream about regularly. 
Ah, <laughs> oh, lovely. <laughs> so, and then lastly, Linz, I like to ask, like, do you, I'd love to hear a memory of yours from nature, and it can be as big or as little as you want and involve whoever you want. But what is, what is a memory of nature that you sometimes sort of drift back to when you're daydreaming? Oh, there, ha- there has been a few, but I think I'm going to hit you with a big one just to make everyone sick with jealousy. <laughs> so when we were in Borneo, we very much lived in the rainforest. Oh, I'm going to tell you two. I'm going to quickly get two in. So yeah, we lived in the rainforest, but the first night, so we had this platform, we had our hammocks, we had mosquito nets, and we were all on this same platform. And I needed a wee, so I popped off into the forest, and then just relieved myself. And then everyone was like, oh my God, what's happening? As I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, because I'd weed on a fire ant's nest. the fire ants obviously attracted to the warmth and they were biting my ankles and I was like ah and it was pitch black I just had my little head torch on so I came running out of the forest and I was just flicking all these fire ants off my legs (laughs) and even though you're like ah this is hurting so much you're still like I'm in an actual jungle (laughs) I am so lucky to be in this jungle (laughs) to have even met a fire ant (laughs) So that is, yeah, that's a funny one. And then the other one is, again, but actually when we were in Borneo, but I must tell you one of when we we're in the UK too. So when we were in Borneo, we had to wash in the streams and the little local rivers and we called it a mandy. So you'd, you'd have your sarong on, you'd cover yourself up with your sarong. And I was having my wash, you cover yourself in, you've got to keep yourself covered because obviously there's other people there as well. So keeping yourself covered while having a wash is quite fun. But I just distinctly remember us just falling quiet and we were just having our little wash and then I heard something and I was like what on earth is that and it was an orangutan doing a long call so I was like guys guys come and listen to this everyone come listen and when we had one of the guys there that used to you know our guide he was like that's wild we were in an area where we were were building a release camp for captive orangutans that have been rewilded and there were not any obviously captive ones that had been released in that area recently and so that was a wild orangutan like a proper proper wild orangutan and a long call is the most eeriest weirdest noise but also incredible so we all got we just got all these amazing got goosebumps and we were just overjoyed and that that was a massive massive event in my life because I was just like this is why we're here. This is why we're here. This uh, this volunteer project was incredible because you saw your money spent there in front of you for this release area. And we were building kind of staff digs, as it were, so they could keep an eye and patrol the area to make sure that the rela- uh, orangutans that were being released could, could be safe. So to hear a wild orangutan in that area was was truly something else. Yeah amazing give a give a shout out to the orangutan foundation who are they what are they doing oh they are incredible they work so hard it's the orangutan foundation based here in the uk and the founder a lady called ashley is just constant yeah i mean you said i'm constant but she is constantly fighting just to protect rainforests and to release ex-captive orangutans out there just constant you know fighting against the palm oil plantations and yeah, they do really good work. And the volunteer 
experiences were amazing because you're right there in the thick of it. <laughs> they don't hide anything. Yeah, incredible. Very, very lucky to have been part of that. And what about your English story? Oh, there's so many in the UK, isn't there? They don't have to be these big exotic animals. Um, I know what I want. To, I know what I want to hear. You posted a you posted a video on Instagram where you on Facebook and Instagram where you were like beside yourself, nearly crying, and because you were stood next to a bush that was alive with insects. And I think it was sort of just after your pollinator pledge. It was like maybe really early in the morning when you were walking your dog, but. Oh my God, I remember that. Just yeah. thinking that was so that was, great. That, yeah, because I think as I'm learning, and I, you know, I don't know much about insects really in the UK. So as I'm learning more and more and you, you become attuned to it and you see it and you feel it. Yeah, it's just when the ivy is in full bloom, the amount of insects that rely on that ivy is unreal. So that was, yeah, that was a particular bush that's actually at work, which made it even more special because we'd created this wildlife wellness area out of old pallets. So we get to go and sit there on our lunch break. And this was happening like above our heads, above the pallet seating. So I just had to say it. And, you know, it's not for the squeamish because some people are obviously scared of the buzzies. It was incredible. There were so many species on that plant. It was unreal. And to, I don't know, like, how could you be scared of that? It's just the joy of nature. And they rely so heavily on, heavily on that ivy. And then actually, I recently learned, I went on a walk around Beth Chateau Garden, which is kind of a bit of a name drop. Beth Chateau Gardens is, she's an amazing person within, you know, the horticultural world. But her gardens and then a guy called Chris Gibson, which again is another name drop. He's a very well-known nature guy within Colchester in the UK. So he gave us a talk and I was like, oh, I love the, you know, the ivy's so important. And even then, and this was in November, we saw still some blue bottles feeding on the last remaining bit of pollen. And, and I said to him, so when is a good time to cut this stuff back? Because <laughs> ivy is prolific. You know, it grows so, so much. And, you know, in in a real world as well, it can take over your life. And he said, don't cut it back until after February, because once the ivy has done its pollinating, then it produces its berries and so much relies on the berries as well. So just a really simple English plant just makes such a difference to our insects. And if it's rightly managed, it can support whole ecosystems. So yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, that's you. Oh. <laughs> Linz, this was so amazing getting together and having this conversation. It's essentially just an extension of the 12 minute voice notes that we receive from each other on a weekly basis. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> Whenever one of us is driving and we just have to talk about our little wins. Yeah, definitely. Throughout the time. But do you have any parting comments to whoever's going to listen to this? Oh, yeah, I do. I just want to bring hope because I feel like there you know there's a lot of depressing news and stuff like that but actually there's also a lot to be hopeful for and I feel like you just got to look for that hope and for me it's those little ripples you know someone said to me the other day Linz because of you I now compost my tea bags <laughs> and I was like well 
beeping hell that's fantastic good for you (laughs) and it's those little ripples that you know whatever you do let's lead by example let's keep the hope because you know humans are incredible as a species and we can we can sort this out we can definitely sort this out so always keep the hope spread those little ripples well I know they say I know that they say that you can choose your friends but you can't choose your family but I'm just can't tell you how lucky I feel that my mum met your dad and stayed together for all these years because you have absolutely been a guiding force in my life forever and I don't definitely would not be the person that I am today and would not be doing what I am today if it wasn't for you so thank you very much Lynn oh that's lovely that's lovely of you I love you very much and ditto we're inspired by each other (laughs) all right love you lots see you soon (laughs) you too bye thank you so much for listening to this episode got some thoughts and feelings let's keep this conversation going please do get in touch rate subscribe and comment to help other people find this podcast and let's keep cultivating conservation conservation